Hi there, welcome to episode 125. Today we're talking about the value of just staying home. You are listening to the Simple Families Podcast, a Q&A style show that brings you solutions for living well with family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi there, it's Danae here. This is episode 125, and I'm so happy to have you tuned in. If you're new to Simple Families, the best way to stay in touch is to go to simplefamilies.com and leave your email address. The email list will keep you up to date with what's going on on the podcast, in the community, and on the blog. I'd also like to share that I've recently relaunched the Simplifying Child Behavior Program. I truly believe in this program, and if you're looking for a foundation in positive parenting and effective behavior management, Go to simplefamilies.com forward slash behavior. This is a great program for co-parents to do together. It's three minutes a day for 30 days, self-paced. Today, I have an interview with Rahima Dancy. Now, if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you know that I'm a fan of progressive approaches to education. I've talked to a lot of Montessori teachers, some Reggio Emilia people, and this is the first Waldorf person that I've had on. But this episode really isn't about Waldorf. Rahima wrote a powerful book called You Are Your Child's First Teacher. This book has been around for 20 plus years. It's been reprinted a few times. I've read it twice. It has brought me a lot of new perspective, in particular, the educational value of just staying home and hanging out with our family. So that's really what Rahima and I are talking about today, that you are your child's first teacher. The time that you spend giving this informal education to your children is actually more valuable than a formal education. You might recognize Rahima's name because she's a well-known author, but also because if you follow me on Instagram or Facebook and you see the quote images that I do, I frequently use her quotes and her commentary. She brings a lot of wisdom. Now, before we jump into today's episode, here's a quick one-minute word from our sponsor. Today's sponsor is Simple Contacts. Now, when I first encountered Simple Contacts, I thought it was just a regular old mail order contact company, but it's actually so much more. If you wear contacts, then you know how annoying it is to have to get a prescription year after year just to buy more contacts. And if you're anything like me, then you probably wear the same prescription year after year. Here's how it works. You can use your phone or computer and take a simple five-minute eye test anywhere. Then a real doctor reviews your test, writes your prescription, and then boom, you get a fresh supply of brand new contacts. It was actually that simple. Now, please remember that this is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. I encourage you to try it out. You can get $20 off your first order. Go to simplecontacts.com forward slash simple 20 and use the code simple 20 at checkout. Again, go to simplecontacts.com forward slash simple 20 and use the code simple 20 at checkout. Now, I don't necessarily mean stay at home and be a stay at home mom or be a stay at home dad. I mean, taking the opportunities that we have, the weekends, the evenings to just be, to just do regular stuff, to not feel the pressure to fill up every moment of our time with activities. Your children are constantly learning from you, and this informal education is in many ways more valuable than a formal education. To try to resist the urge to wake up on a Saturday morning, run to grab coffee, go to the playground, hit soccer practice, and instead slow down and appreciate the value of staying home. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. I'm going to put some links in the show notes to more about what Rahima and I talked about today and how to reach her for more information. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this chat with Rahima. Hi, Rahima. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'm excited to have you on, Rahima. I read your book 
You Are Your Child's First Teacher several years ago. And then I've been rereading it in preparation for chatting with you. And there are so many takeaways that I have taken away from this book. And I've highlighted a lot of different things that I want to ask you about today. But I wanted to first, if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and about your background. Yeah, I became uh, trained and became a Waldorf teacher in the early 80s and raised four children trying to use those indications. And my my work was with midwifery and then with early childhood. And from that, I kind of segued into Lifeways, which is um, a real emphasis on home life and the first three years especially, but really valuing all these things you're talking about, how to be with young children, how to be at home with young children, how to create either in-home childcare programs or even centered programs that mimic home life, because really that's what children need. They need the what we bring to them if we have the best home life possible. So what does that mean? It means having rhythm. It means having activities that show things being transformed. It means having the opportunity for them to have imaginative play and to imitate what we're doing, all of those things. So right now, my work is primarily with LifeWays, and that's really a supportive organization for parents with children from birth to age six. Okay. And what brought you to write this book? Well, I was kind of given a mission to make a bridge between the cultural creatives, those people who were into attachment parenting, La Leche League, home birth. I was a home birth midwife. And the indications I found in Rudolf Steiner, because when I first wrote the book, there was nothing in English except you know German pediatricians from the 30s who just did not fly <laughs> in this, in this uh, setting. So that's why I wrote the book, was really to try to build bridges into these insights that were transforming my life, my home life, and also my professional life in early childhood, and to make that accessible. So what did you see as the disconnect between these two communities? or between these two environments that you felt like you needed to bridge? Well, there, I don't think there was a disconnect so much as, you know, it, it hadn't spread. Nobody gave the word. And so I originally wrote articles in Mothering Magazine in the 80s, and everybody went, huh, oh my gosh, we got to look into Waldorf. We have to look into this approach. So that was, again, the, the result of your, your Child's First Teacher was to bring people to to look at these insights. And again, Steiner always says, try them for yourself. You know, don't take it don't take it on on gospel or on somebody else's word. Try these things and see if they make sense. Right. And so much of this book is not about a traditional educational framework. We're using it as a set curriculum in a school. This is about life and life at home. Right. Absolutely. And I think that there's that's something that we're talking about this month is that in rethinking education, education is something that starts from birth. It's something that starts at home. Even if you're not homeschooling your kids, even if you're sending your kids to traditional schools or if they're going to daycare, that the impact of the home life exceeds far beyond what most of us understand. Absolutely. And the value of it. I mean, women's work is undervalued in our society. We know that. That's childcare, homemaking. All of these things are uh, not supported. They're not supported financially. They're also not supported by the culture. And so how can we reclaim them in a way that's nurturing to us as parents, and I'm a grandparent today, but you all as parents today, and highly educated and really, you know, 
on the internet and trying to find the best way of raising children. And it is, in a sense, coming back to quote unquote basics, but reclaiming them through awareness, through bringing, um, I hate to say love to it, to bringing conscious awareness to, to what we're doing, to finding the value in creating a stable and nourishing home life to give your child the best start in life. And I mean, nobody's trying to be retrograde or go back to the 50s or any of that kind of stuff. It's how can we give children a foundation? How can we value the life and how can it nurture us as well as our kids by being home with them? I love what you wrote about being a homemaker today and about society not valuing women, because I think that it was a very different lens than I've ever seen this information before. And you wrote in your book, you wrote, almost no one wants to be a homemaker today, and understandably so. And it's funny that you wrote that because I actually kind of cringe when I hear the word Absolutely. homemaker. And and, and I, I hate that, but it does. It, something inside of me cringes. And I just, there are lots of other things I'd like to call it. And I was home almost exclusively with my kids for almost four years, the first four years. And I never, ever called myself a homemaker, nor did I ever want to be called a homemaker. I suggest domestic goddess, but that doesn't... doesn't, (laughs) You did, and I love that. It doesn't really take into account that the domestic goddess has lots of kids. Um, Yeah, this is the problem, you know, where we have, and I think rightfully so, rejected or let go of these older images of the woman sacrificing herself, not going out of the home, volunteering if she did anything, not being valued, you know, and then putting on her makeup and being ready to greet her husband when he gets home at five. Those days are long gone and they should be. But it comes back to how can we either be home with our children and have it be fulfilling rather than driving us crazy, or how can we create childcare programs that imitate what the child would be getting at home, the rhythm, the smallness, the mixed age, all of these things that Lifeways really gives a a template for to bring into childcare settings because it's so valuable and it's so under valued. It is. And you, one of the things you wrote in your book, you said, it's my belief and personal experience that a college educated adult was never meant to be isolated at home every day with a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And that I think is, it's an interesting perspective that as a college educated adult, that you have certain intellectual needs and certain needs that need to be stimulated. And we can, it can be hard to find that at home with kids. Is that, can you speak more to that? Yeah, I think you know, the world has changed, women has changed, our whole background in education has changed. There are so many conflicting and pulls on us and pulling us in many different directions. And it, I don't know if it was ever satisfying, you know, for mothers in the 50s to be doing that, especially after having a lot of them worked, you know, in the in the outer world in World War II. But it's, you know, it, I think we just have to say, whoa, this is this is tough stuff. You know, this is not all of our meaning, all of our, it doesn't engage all of us. And so how can we recreate and bring ourselves to this task of being with young children and of creating a home life for them and giving them the best start in life? Again, it's not in any way going backwards. It's saying, how can we find meaning? How can we know what we're doing and value that? How can we, you know, and I don't know that we're ever going to be recognized, you know. I thought I thought the feminist movement would, would you know, recognize mothering and childcare and all that kind of stuff, and it, it doesn't seem to. And I really realized that, you know, the goddess of the hearth 
Hestia in Greek mythology is invisible. And then I went, oh, right, this is invisible work. You know, it's like watching the grass grow. You, you, you can't, just keeping up with the house and the kids and so forth, it, you, you don't see the progress. And of course, it is there every day, but it's so slow. So I think there are ways to bring meaning to it and understanding child development, understanding what do young children really need. They're not little adults. It's not bring on the flashcards at nine months or bring in the classes and the, and the stimulation and so forth in order to give them what they need. It's really understanding child development and the consciousness of the young child. Right. And you had mentioned that there are some subcultures that you feel like are do appreciate mothering and value mothering, and one being the Mormon culture. And I do have friends that are Mormon, and I, I've seen this, that there is a high value placed on family and having the mother at home and caring for the kids. And do you think that in cultures like this and in families like this, that the role of the mother, being a mother in these families, do you feel like that is a different experience in some ways? You know, you have to ask them. <laughs> but yeah. from, from the women that I've observed, and I ran a birth center in, in Michigan, and, and you know, we had people from all different backgrounds and walks of life and so forth, it seemed to. I mean, I was kind of like in, in amazement because I didn't have that, you know, that background or that framework. So I think we have to start where we are. You know, every woman has to start with her own balance. Is it working outside of the home? And then how does she juggle everything that, that you know, is needed for her children? Is it doing flex time? Is it being at home, working, you know, some kind of a job at home in addition to childcare? Is it dedicating herself to homeschooling and really being there, you know, 100%? You have to know yourself. There's really no right and wrong way. I came from a background where, like I said in that quote, I did not do well with a one-year-old and a three-year-old and being at home full-time, and this was 45 years ago, going, wow, what, 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 what's going on? This is nuts. Right. And I, I'm reflecting back a little bit on my first years with my kids and I have a PhD in child development. And I feel like that really helped me find my value in being home in that I really felt like the work that I was doing was really important, even though the work that I was doing was not flashcards and it wasn't Pinterest activities. It was just being at home with my kids. And we are homebodies. We spend a lot of time at home. And I guess I think that having that background and that education helped me to feel confident in that, that I was doing the best by my children, being home, just being yeah. with them. And that's something that I see a lot of mothers struggling with is this confidence that they are enough and that being with their children and not entertaining and running them around everywhere, that just as is, they are enough. Right. So you came to that, you know, through your studies, through a PhD. It's LifeWays really offers a way to come to that that's much less demanding. You know, we offer a 28-day program that is, you know, part-time in little clumps that people with children can do. We offer online courses. There are ways to gain an understanding of child development and of how to create. I offer an online course called Inspired Homemaking. And that's, uh, you know, do it at your own pace. It, it, it goes for five weeks. So it's kind of live, you know, it's only offered at certain times. But it's a way of connecting uh, around these things of, whoa, you know, how do I find value? What does this mean? What does my child need? What if I'm you know, going crazy doing puzzles or trying to find quality time with my child. How do you provide, you know, the, the time 
that includes the child, but that isn't trying to entertain them. I mean, you and I are on the same page with all this. So the question is, how do we, you know, how do we convey that to especially mothers at home, full-time dads at home as well, that when you provide a rhythmical home life and understand child development and can provide meaningful work, can provide an example of meaningful work, you know, it's much more advantageous to have the child helping you with the dishes and playing in the bubbles than doing the dishes really fast while the child's napping so that then you can entertain the child when they're awake. And that's, I mean, that's revolutionary talk. You know, this is not the way people are raising their children. Yeah, I think it runs counter to a lot of what society is telling us we need to be doing with our kids. Right. Does and I want I want to put that link to your five week course in the show notes too. So I will put that for anyone that is interested to learn more about that because I think that sounds really fascinating. And I think you're right that it's something that I think would be I think for women to find this value in that just doing and just being yourself and living a simple life is a really powerful way to educate and to help your children to develop to their full potential. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, another another thing that how to value home life, how to make your activities so that they will include your child. There's that whole aspect. There's the other aspect of not feeling like you have to introduce academics. There's so much pressure to be, you know, teaching, taking advantage of all these teaching moments and really making sure that your child is, you know, literate by age three and computer literate by age two. And really what they need is imaginative play that comes from them. And then at the maturational change around first grade, around age six to seven, boom, they take off with reading and writing and the academics. And that's not the way our country is run because, you know, people like yourself with a PhD in early childhood education are not advising. It's the senators and it's the government and it's the, oh, we're behind in our, you know, world standing for literacy. Therefore, we teach the three-year-olds. And they're not ready. Even the ones that are ready, the very bright ones, they lose their early childhood when we do that with them. They, you know, they lose that creativity and that wellspring that needs to be there because they're not going to, the jobs that our children are going to have today don't even exist. You know, when they, jobs they will have when they grown up don't even exist today. And that's why they need creativity. They need this background of early childhood. Right. Now in your book, you wrote, and I'd like you to speak a little bit more to this because I thought this was an interesting point. You wrote that the No Child Left Behind Act has reinforced our impetus to introduce elementary school curriculum earlier and earlier. So now kindergartners are doing what used to be taught in first grade. The fact that many children are now failing kindergarten while functional illiteracy continues to rise in this country has only led to starting reading readiness with four-year-olds in an increasing number of school systems. Tell me about kids learning to read and does it matter when you start? You know, there are two real components to it. One is oral tradition. If we're singing to them, if we're doing nursery rhymes, if we're talking with them, they're getting the listening skills. And then if we're letting them do imaginative play, they have that experience of one thing turning into another. A, a, a wooden block could be a can of soup. It could be, a, you know, an iron. It could be anything that they've seen. And that's what reading is about. It's about having these squiggles, sometimes be this sound, sometimes be that, representing something else. So play is really such an important background for reading. The other thing that that is really important is maturation. 
you know, when I was young, I couldn't imagine. You know, I, I learned to read when before I started school with you know Dick and Jane and this crazy simple stuff, and I would hear about children starting at age ten with the King James version of the Bible. And I was like, how could they possibly learn? You know, in the pioneer time, how could they have possibly learned to read with something that that difficult? And it was because they were ten. You know, it was because they were maturationally ready to make all those those leaps that are involved in reading. So when we take what goes on in age six, seven, which is when you know reading starts to be uh, really appropriate, and take it down to age four or even age three, we're making a lot of children failures, the very bright ones. Yes, they can do it. But like I say, they get, they get cheated in the process as well. So that's, that's a lot about reading the studies of the Waldorf School. Waldorf teaches reading a lot more slowly. It teaches math a lot more quickly than conventional education. It teaches reading a lot more slowly. And, uh, you know, the follow-up studies, especially in Europe, show that children who, you know, follow this approach and read at age six and seven are much more advanced, are still loving reading when they're in fourth grade, are not burned out. Just again, the, the statistics are there, the studies are there. Whereas the way we're doing it in this country, we're still floundering. You know, we're still no child left behind. Oh, the schools are failing. Right. Because earlier is not better. And I've seen, so I live in New York and we live sort of right on the New York and Connecticut border. So some of our friends live in Connecticut and the cutoff for kindergarten here is December. So you can be turn five in December in New York and January for Connecticut. So that means there's a heck of a lot of four-year-olds in kindergarten in these states. And my son, he's an end of November birthday. And when we moved here a year ago from Texas, I was sort of stunned that he was really supposed to be going to kindergarten this year. And that has really concerned me to think that there are lots and lots of four-year-olds who are starting kindergarten, which, you know, as you said, is the new first grade. And I think about other parents I've talked to and they said, well, yeah, we'll send them at four if they're ready. And just because a kid knows their ABCs and their one, two, three is at four, doesn't mean that that's starting early isn't going to impact the later years. What are your thoughts about starting a kid into academics really early and what the impact it might be might have on them as they get older? Yeah, as you're intimating, there are so many levels in which it does impact them. And I think that it's such a gift to give the child an extra year, especially these borderline birthdays. If you can give them the extra year, then they have the emotional maturity, the social maturity to not always be, you know, running and catching up and being the youngest in their class. And especially for boys who, you know, don't sit down as well and don't uh, have the social skills when they're younger, etc. It's so important to, you know, hold off and to to give that extra year of play, that extra year of maturation. The other problem with starting academics early is it really changes consciousness. It really wakes the child up and takes them out of the imaginative, creative world that they're living in. So they they lose something as well. And Steiner had a lot to say about that. He said it actually makes health differences later on, especially in older, you know, in middle age, and I mean all kinds of crazy stuff that he that he indicated. So there's a lot of ways in which you know the academics earlier is not is not the way to go. Plus, you end up with children then being in remedial or having, you know, being always at the bottom, whereas they could be middle or top easily. Right. And we live in an area, we're just about an hour north of New York City, and there's a lot of very competitive school districts in the suburbs here. 
And it scares me. It scares me to think of the risks for anxiety and depression and the astounding rates and increases we've already seen in the last decade and where it's going to be going in the next 10 years. And a lot of it, I think, is in ways related to this, this idea that we're pushing and pushing and pressuring and pressuring our kids to learn in ways that might not be fit for them. Exactly. And I think the pressure is, you know, oh, my child won't get into the right school or won't get ahead or whatever. But by really going more slowly and providing that firm foundation of uh, imaginative play and a rhythmical home life and holding off on academics, you've provided just a wonderful background for them to be excelling and it coming from themselves. My daughter was uh, in Steiner, you know, from preschool, kindergarten, first grade, and she was seven. She turned seven in November in first grade, and she was so eager to read. She was just like, give it to me. It was like, (laughs) and she went one night, she said, last night, I dreamed about the letter A. There were all these A's. And it was like, I was just laughing because it was so wonderful. You know, the letters are presented imaginatively, and they spend, you know, practically a week on each letter at age seven. And but to have that so permeating her and at fourth grade, she was reading junior high books and, you know, was was in no way burned out. She was just so totally wanting it all so much. So that was that was a vindication to me of this approach. I love that story. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by a rhythmical home life? Yeah. Again, this is something we consider in the in the online courses. How do you What's the value of having things happen at the same time and in the same way? And then how do you take your normal life? Because our lives are chaotic. We don't have rhythm. We don't know what it is. We don't value it. How do you gradually bring your life with young children into rhythm? And I suggest, you know, if you tend to go to the library once a week with the child, have it be on the same day. If you do your laundry once a week, have that be on another day. So they start to have a sense of the week. How does the day work? We really talk about activities breathing, that the child knows what's coming next. They know how it's coming. You have long activities that are kind of like an outbreath, like free play, that are kind of undirected. And you have short activities where, you know, they sit, they listen, they respond to something, they learn something. And it's this idea of bringing rhythm into life. It's really supportive for the person who's home, the adult as well. And like I say, it's something we don't value, but all for children to know, not have to be thinking what's going to happen, what's next, where do I do? It's just like, this is the way life is. Life starts out with breakfast, and then we take our plates, and then we do dishes, and then, you know, we check our beds, and then we have outside playtime, and then ta-da-da-da. So whether you're home or whether the child's in a preschool program, that life happens in a rhythmical way. Dinner is the same way. Bedtime happens pretty much the same way every night at the same time. Then there's nobody to argue with because children will be arguing. And you just say, wow, that's, that's on the clock, on the little light, on the outside light makes it harder in the summertime. But you know, there's, there's nobody to argue with. It's it's bedtime. Absolutely. Now my kids have been in Montessori school for a couple of years in the summer. I had them home. So they weren't, they didn't do any summer camps or anything like that. And so they didn't have as much of that rhythm as they had been used to getting up every morning and going to school for three hours. And I found that my four-year-old was really craving it. Like he would want, I would sort of like every morning he'd be like, what are we doing today? And I would draw it out sort of like a schedule of the the step of each, we're going to have breakfast, then we're going to read books. And he just, he craved 
saved that rhythm to his days. And it's something that I've seen and I'm not sending them back to school in the fall. So it's something that I feel like I need to continue to replicate in some way, finding that rhythm, whether it's sending them to school or not, but having that something, knowing what they can expect every day. It's a real gift to them because then they don't always have to be thinking about it or planning or being surprised or coping. It's that they know. And it's amazing how much they're capable of if we have rhythm and then have high expectation. I mean, in my program, I had 12 one to five-year-olds. And I mean, the 14-month-olds can take their plate over to the, you know, buckets and put the compost and put the plate down in the, or they can be a server, even when they're small, a year and a half. And we don't think of that. We're always doing everything for them and, you know, trying to hustle and bustle them on to the next activity. You know, cleaning up is an activity. It's totally valuable that now that we're done, we together with imagination and a song and with with uh, being chosen and blowing out a candle. And this, this is so valuable to learn. Right. And I think about it from an adult perspective and I have access to my calendar all the time. But if I had this sort of agenda every day and I had no idea what it was and I had no way to access it and see it and I just had to wait for someone to tell me in now we're doing this, now we're doing that, I that would bring me a whole lot of anxiety, I think, even as an adult. Lots of the uh, adrenal steroids, etc. I mean, lots of, yeah, lots of yeah. stress hormones. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think it's just, I think it brings a sense of calm to anyone of any age to be able to predict and to be able to understand what their days are going to look like. And that way, the home life becomes a, a platform or a foundation from which we can go out into the world, from which we can, you know, do things. And that's adults or children. You know, if we have these basic activities of daily living as a supportive platform, then we have the chance as adults for freedom, for creativity, for children you know, to learn, to express themselves, to not be stressed all the time. It's really, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful trick. (laughs) Yeah. So one last quote I want you to speak a little bit more about. You wrote, many parents of young children are surprised at how difficult it seems to stay at home with them. They often report being out the door with their toddler by 7 a.m. to visit a park, buy a cup of coffee because the child doesn't want to be at home. Can you talk more about that? Because I definitely know that sensation personally, and I know so many others that do, that feel the need, like, we got to get out. We just can't stay home. Yeah, I think with a lot of parents, and obviously not so much with you, but it, it comes from feeling you have to entertain the child all the time. And so having more time where the child is is doing self-directed play so the child can live into imaginative little settings with toys and can amuse themselves and is not, are not always coming back mommy mommy and do something with me and what's next and where are we going and and so forth that's you know that's one of the things that helps with it i think too parents are always interrupting their child Every time you know, the, the child is doing something, they interrupt by telling them or a teaching moment or this is what that is or this is how it works or this is what you do. Or do you remember when we did it? And letting the child be a little bit more dreamy, letting the child not be so awake and not so dependent on interaction with you. It makes life more sane. Just there are a lot of elements to it. Yeah, I think that so many parents fear boredom as well. They fear their kids getting bored because then they get to be irritable and they start to hang on their leg and that sort of thing. But I mean, I know what I've seen with my own children is that the boredom is a little painful, right? At first, it's it's a little painful before kids figure out what to do with the boredom. But after the boredom is when the magic really happens, is when they really start to be creative and they really start to make something 
out of nothing. Yeah, you know, the boredom really is only in transition. If you're transitioning from, you know, typical American life to trying to do this differently, young children are never bored. You know, they would they 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 learn that word from an older sibling, from an adult, because they're the world is alive and magic for them, and everything they see they can transform into something else, and and they're so so totally in the moment that the boredom is really like mommy interact with me or you know i'm not you know i'm not in a situation where i can come up with this children in other cultures who don't have all the toys and stimulation they'll they'll play with a stick a stick in the mud in the in the street you know in the gutter or whatever whatever the children are so totally creative especially young children so totally creative they aren't bored but we need to set it up so that our toys, you know, invite engagement with their imaginations, that we really aren't interrupting them all the time, that we're honoring, you know, who they are and what they need. And then, as you say, they, they find that. And that I, it was certainly a transit. When my children were young, I couldn't figure it out. You know, I was like, I used to play all the time and play by myself. And what is with this, you know, three children saying, mommy, 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 all the time. And then I got into Steiner and really setting up play spaces and having them in, in preschools that were play-based and so forth. And the, the transition was amazing. That And neighbors would say, oh, we love to have your daughter come over because she just organizes everybody into a circus and does this and da da da, da. And I'm like, woohoo! <laughs> you know? Yeah, success. success. We got back to that birthright that children have. So I, you know, I, like you, I, I know when it, when it's there and when it's not, or when we, you know, tried to squelch it, and when we can bring it back, or how we can bring it back. Right, and it's possible for everybody, no matter where you're at. And I know I said it was the last quote I'm going to use, but there's one more that I loved, and you said it's fruitless to feel guilty for what I did earlier because I was doing the best I could at the time. And I think that's so powerful because there's so many of us who feel a lot of guilt in parenting for what we didn't do or for what we're doing or for what we feel like we're not doing good enough. And even you speak to the fact that you learned as you went along and parenting was a learning experience for you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I tell people, I tell parents I made every mistake in the book, which is why I wrote the book. Because I, I, we don't, this, this stuff is, is, you know, it's countercultural. It's so not what we're swimming in. And so to understand child development and to, you know, try these things, it's all new for us, all, all of us, because we don't grow up with it. We don't see it. We don't, we haven't come in contact with what, what young children really need. So of course, of course, we're doing something different and we're all trying to do the best we can. So absolutely. Right. And now more than ever, I think that kids need this and this generation really needs to get back to the basics of play and childhood in order to really be successful and happy as they grow up. Yeah, the protection of child. There's so many things attacking childhood and for us to protect it and to value it and to value mothering, to value fathering, to value all these things. It's um, it is so important today. It is. Well, thank you so much, Rahima. This has been so great. And I am going to put some links in the show notes to some of your resources that you have available, because I think there's going to be some people that want to dive a little deeper for sure. Well, it's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you. Thank you, Rahima. That was really great. Okay, great. I appreciate you tuning in. And when you get a chance, please leave a rating or review in iTunes. Your support is appreciated.